Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. This week's interview with Adam was way too short for such a fascinating figure. But a family man's duties are many, and we tried to squeeze everything in as best we could. Adam is now best known for his unrelenting critiques and callouts of the mainstream media. It's a wonder he's been able to develop a radar so finely tuned to bullshit when you consider that he grew up listening to a lot of Rush Limbaugh with his very conservative dad in Texas. So we are coming to you from on location uh, <laughs> in Chicago, out out on the socialist streets. Not really, but I am sitting with a socialist. A, a very bourgeois who, neighborhood. That's right. Who might this uh, socialist be? Well, you'd better come correct. And <laughs> kind of like that motorcycle. Uh, and you'd better be able to cite your sources because citations will be needed. <laughs> I'm sitting here today with Adam. What's up? How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's we are we are indeed outdoors. Um, I hope correct. I'm hope I'm intelligible. No, no, no. You'll be fine. We're going to okay. make it sound super pretty. Uh, what's up? How, what's going on? How are you? Uh, I'm well. Um, how are you? I'm, um, I'm going to the zoo later. Mm-hmm. I, I think zoos were canceled, but I'm going anyway because I don't know. Oh, socially canceled? I don't know. I think they're kind of evil. Yeah, but I also want to... Take, see, I'm gonna have my newborn see the animals, so we're gonna say that I'm that's a little acceptable. torn. Yeah, um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> happy faces. I think that's, I think that's still something people do. Um, so, uh, Adam, you kind of, I mean, you know, people, people know you. You're, 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 you're one of the people. I think people look toward um, in terms of like helping to understand kind of current political events and like sharpen one's analysis. Um, but I want to go back to the beginning uh, to understand kind of how you got here. Um, where'd you grow up, Adam? I grew up in San Antonio. Oh, okay. Texas. I was born in Houston, but I mostly grew up in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. I spent summers in Houston. My parents were divorced. Uh-huh. Um, but mostly San Antonio, Texas. Okay. Cool. Uh, I, went to, I went to school at UT Austin. Uh-huh. And then I moved to New York. Um, Immediately after, I did not finish school. Uh-huh. Barely, though. It was only a few credits shy. Huh. Um, but then, and then I lived in New York for 10 years, and I've lived in Chicago for three. Right so on. So that's, that's why I have NYC in my handle, despite the fact that I don't live in NYC. <laughs> right. And yeah. have it now for about three and a half years. I got you. What was it like growing up in San Antonio? Uh, it was nice. It was hot. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a soft spot for San Antonio. It used to be uniformly lame and corny and now it's i think it's cool now so i go back there and the everything's expensive now you felt like it was corny while you were growing up yeah but austin got too expensive so a lot of people moved to san antonio and uh-huh. now, now san antonio is like cool uh-huh. which is funny because it was like that was that's what it was known for not being cool uh-huh. 
But, but um, uh -huh. now, now it's now it's basically just trying to do what Austin did because it's and the real estate has gone up proportionally. But I, I, I like San Antonio. I mean, again, it kind of depends on where you grew up. I suppose different people have different experiences. Sure, sure, sure. What did your parents do growing up? My, but well, uh, it varies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My mother was uh, largely unemployed. Mm -hmm. That's a separate conversation. We'll save that for later. Sure. My dad was a software salesman. Huh. And my mom worked at a bank. He worked for who? Texas Instruments or Dell or what? No, he, he it was a litigation software. Ah, okay. Various companies. Oh, okay. Um, and he's tried to start his own company. And I think he failed once and I think did okay one time. Uh -huh. But um, neither of my biological parents went to, went to college. So they were... Um, but my stepmom did. My stepmom. My stepmom did okay. Oh, okay. Uh, and are you the only child? I have a brother. Oh, okay. So the two. Now, were you guys? How would your parents and/or like community describe you growing up? Were you like hell on wheels? Were you like, you know, kind of like a chill, good kid? What? How do you? How would people describe I you? I was. My brother was the rebellious one. I was actually quite a not rebellious. I mean, I was straight edge. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't drink till I was twenty-two. Uh -huh. You weren't hell on wheels growing up. No, I was actually not. I was kind of a, I think I was um, aloof and, and smug, but I. I what do you mean? I don't know. I always thought I was sort of too cool for everyone. Growing up. Yeah. What did that look like? I don't know. I just was probably not the most like, I, I, that's sort of hard to define, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be somewhat um, uh, accurate. I, I, in other words, I, I think I was very, I, I never really got in trouble, but that doesn't necessarily mean I was like. I, you know, ideal from a parent's perspective. Okay, but why do you say that? What do you mean? You know, I mean, it's like any other kind of angst, angsty teenager growing up in middle class. I, I always thought it was sort of too good for my town. I was going to leave. and mm, Like this like this place isn't big enough for me. Like you yeah, guys aren't into I interesting things. I think that's fair to say. Pre-angsty teenage years, I'm saying like growing up, you, you as, a, as an elementary school, you felt that way? I don't, yeah, I don't think I was very rebellious, no. Okay. I was quite, um, I made decent grades. Mm -hmm. um, you were like an A B student. I fell off in I fell off in high school because I had too many projects. But I I was a straight B student, Girl, like up until high school. Well, I was maybe A until high school. Then high school I went to B because, which is why I had to transfer into my college because I, I I had a hard time. Mm. Did you? I, I was not. I did not excel as a student. Is what I'll say. I think okay. I was I was exceedingly mediocre. Okay. Because you know you could sort of coast. In Texas public schools, and, and it wasn't do, extremely do rigorous. No, no, I never, I never took AP classes or anything like that. Or, oh, okay, huh? Because you could coast in in the normal classes, and w why work hard when you could work not hard, right? <laughs> sure. And my parents were sort of checked out, so in terms of academics, so. meaning like they didn't ride you to like. No. Okay. As long as I got good grades, they didn't care. But there wasn't like a focus on like getting the 4.0 and 1500 SAT, all that stuff. Did you have an understanding of your parents' uh, politics growing up? Or their ideology? Yes, my father was a very much a right-winger. Mm, in what way? Let's just say I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Were you kind my, of... My stepmother and my mother, their politics were more, you know, opaque or all over the map, which I think is probably maybe typical of, of that generation. But my father was very uh, a very hardcore conservative. What do you think was animating your father's conservative politics? That he, he legitimately did grow up very poor. Um, both of his parents were out of the picture. He moved from, you know, family member to family member. Mm. 
like I said, he, you know, he didn't go to college. He and he made he made a good living off sales. And uh -huh. to him, people who are drawn to sales are very much like of a certain, you know, kind of rise and grind mindset. Mm. And that ideology, like a lot of people who sort of go from poverty to like middle class, especially of his generation, mm -hmm. they universalize their experiences. Ah, so he was a, like, especially I as a white as a white man, it's like. Mm. If I can do it, everyone can do it. Everyone just complains, that kind of thing. And of course, there's also, you know, I don't think people quite realize that, you know, that, that in the 80s and 90s, if you were, if you spent a lot of time in a car, as a lot of Americans did, you live in the suburbs or, 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 or you know, exurbs, you're listening to Rush Limbaugh three hours a day. Yeah. Again, not, not to say that Rush Limbaugh is solely responsible, but like. It's an influence. It it's becomes a, a It becomes a huge worldview. Uh -huh. And I don't think that, that AM right wing radio. Because, you know, 1200 Clear Channel Radio, which was now is iHeartRadio, mm -hmm. is, and I think to a large extent still is, very right wing. Mm -hmm. And um, Clear Channel was based out of San Antonio, and there was very much a, a, a sort of nonstop inundation of that. That probably had a lot to do with it. Um, I think it's sort of typical, again, kind of typical right wing, Echo Chamber, John Stossel, all that stuff, mm -hmm. um, really kind of shaped his politics. But again, if you're a, if you're a, a slightly entrepreneurial white man, the odds of you being Republican are like 90% anyway. So uh -huh. it's not like it was a huge anomaly. Sure. Were the political or ideological views of other men in your community or, you know, with whom your family was friends, like, was that, was that also reflected similarly from your father? Sorry. Was that, were those views also similar to those of your father? I mean, it's not a secret that Texas is a pretty conservative state that right. even, even like, you know, your average Latino population is going to be fairly conservative in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Bush won the Latino vote, for example, in um, in 2000 in uh, Texas, got 44 percent nationally. So it's like pretty everywhere. I mean, you know, there are varying degrees of conservative. There are different genres. I would say that the conservative ideology is vulgar and as horrible and as racist as it was when I was growing up is, is, is somewhat different than what we have today. How would you describe it as different? I would say there was like an effort to have a modicum of credibility that no longer exists. What do you mean when I you say put, that? I wouldn't put a huge, I wouldn't put a huge premium on that, but I do think it, it is different. But I'm saying, what do you mean when you say that? A modicum of, what did you say? Honesty? C credibility. Credibility. Like some effort to kind of vaguely went over the New York Times crowd. Ah, ah, ah. Whereas I think now owning the libs and yeah. all kinds of paranoid um, extreme extremes are now very common in a way that was is more extreme more hardcore now which is not a very insightful statement i think most people observe that uh-huh um but you know my father passed in 2018 mm -hmm. and um you know he was a trump guy and that's just how it is with family you know yeah. you, you try you do your best to try to talk with them convert them as it were yeah because i do think there's a certain obligation to do that without being too pushy team tedious about it uh -huh. but um you know at a certain age i think people there, there are winnable populations. I, I typically don't think conservatives over the age of 50 are very winnable. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just, you know. So, like, I, I grew up with that kind of upbringing, which is not unusual for people on the left. I think a lot of people sometimes will have various different politics than their parents. Some people are red diaper babies. That was not my experience. Did your, did your father's politics, did you, were, ah, this is kind of not a fair question. Was it because, like, was... Was were were his politics kind of like the water you were swimming in? Like that makes sense. That makes sense because this is what my dad believes, and I understand sort of. my dad's. And story. then I, you know, you get to a certain age and you think, well, okay, 
that doesn't quite seem right. Or what, what you, was, you, you engage in other kinds of forms of liberal indoctrination for better or for worse. What were your forms of liberal indoctrination pre? Because I was a liberal before I was a socialist. No, of course. Everyone for quite is. some time. Everyone is. Yeah. Okay. Well, some people are. They're, when did you they when, come when out did, of the womb with fully formed Marxists? But yeah, not me. No, no. I had, I had a little bit of a journey. Sure. But I'm saying, were you still under your parents' roof? when you started your kind of liberal turn yeah, from I, your brothers? Yeah, I, I had friends, you know, mm -hmm. in school who were like, hey, check this thing out. And what were those things? I would say like Rage Against the Machine was probably ah. the first time I was like exposed to other ideological. Okay. Because they were, it was rock and roll, so it was, you were susceptible to it, right? Sure, as, sure, sure. As a 15, 16 year old, which okay. is when they were like at their peak. Sure. So your teenage years are yeah. like kind of when things were like. I think that's like, right. Like, oh, maybe dad doesn't have And then have freshman this. year of college. Uh -huh. I think I pretty much said, well, that's all kind of bullshit. Uh, okay, but um, before we get to college, did you have an understanding of class growing up? Like, did you, how did you understand your, your family station? Well, so I had a very distinct sense of class for the simple reason of, I've never said this publicly, so maybe I, I don't know, but my mother from the age of 14 till I was 24 was, uh, was homeless. Ah, your biological mother. Biological mother, like wow. living on the street. Oh, wow. Whereas, in San Antonio? No, in Houston. Oh, okay. And my father married someone who had some money, and my uh -huh. stepmom is now who I now consider my mother. Mm -hmm. And so I had a pretty comfortable middle class life. And, mm. then, and then before she was almost at the age of 14, from the age of about seven to 14, she was extremely poor. Uh. She refused to live in a trailer park, so we always lived in these very poor apartments. Sure. So I'd spend summers with her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. so I had a very distinct sense of class, I think, pretty early, because you saw how easy it was to have money and how not easy it was to be very poor how how did you make sense of that as a child do you think well the obvious question is like what did we do to help my my mother no no no, that's know? not what i'm asking well no i mean I, that's what i would say and, and there was efforts to try but i do think there was a there was very much because she had substance abuse issues it I was see. it was like oh she needs to like help herself kind of thing uh, and there was efforts to do that you know rehab etc sure, sure, sure. a lot of various times uh-huh but um but it never uh did she feel did she did her did her condition feel separate from you and the family that you had with your dad and, and your stepmother yeah it was a, it was 180 degrees because again at, past the eight, past the eighth grade or whatever it was ninth grade I, I wouldn't see her until she would call asking for money i see i see i see um but uh, so outside of your mother you felt like more or less most people most people there are people poorer than me maybe there are people richer than me but for the most part most people i have a pretty normal life Normal yes. middle class I, life. Yeah, because again, most of the school year, I'm I'm living. Yeah, very comfortably. Dead. So I, I would never like claim the mantle of being growing up poor because okay. that would be totally false. And you didn't feel rich either, or you only felt rich in comparison to your mother. I would say I felt rich later in life. Huh. Like my parents did not initially have a lot of money, but then I think maybe towards the end of high school they had more money, and then I would say I probably would categorize as I don't know if rich is the word. No one likes to think of themselves as rich. Comfortable. Yeah. Okay. But because I never like, you know, it wasn't like I was skipping meals when I stayed with my mom. Sure. Although maybe sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, but that was that was I was at least exposed to it very early. If that I makes see. sense. I see. I see. I see. Especially in a state like Texas, which has no social welfare state to speak of. Right? Aye, aye, aye. Uh -huh. No addiction help. Nothing. I wow. mean, it's 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 a total libertarian nightmare. Uh huh. But di and you, but did you process it as such growing up? A, like a libertarian I think a little nightmare? bit. I think it sort of planted the seeds of like. Mm class consciousness. Mm -hmm. And did the, the perilous turn for your mother around beginning of high school, eighth grade, beginning of high school, did, is that kind of what presupposed the messages from like Rage Against the Machine, like finding, taking root with you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, because yeah, the obvious thing you say when you're a kid is like, if someone's homeless, why don't we just give them a home? And then you're immediately told very early on, especially by one's right wing father and others that like, 
oh, you can't do that. That's mm. like that incentivizes bad behavior. It's a moral failing on their part. And so there's a there's a there's a contrast between what you observe versus what you're told. Right. And then that's in a way what you see that you're doing is you're, you're sort of rationalizing in action, both on a uh, personal level and a, and a sort of social level. Right? Uh, and I think if we're going to take this one step further, probably it, it um, that that couldn't find a home with you because this wasn't just there wasn't some like abstract exercise. This is like someone, you know, this is someone you're related yeah. to that is suffering. So it's like, no, but we can do more. And, and I bought all the tropes, you know, I, I you know, they have to learn to help themselves. Huh. Uh, um, you, you did know, at one point by the being tropes. selfish. Yeah, because oh, okay. that's what you were told by society. We've done several episodes of citations on this. Uh -huh. I've never talked about it in my own personal context, but the idea of like rehab, rock bottom, like the sort of sanctimonious absent abstinence only, like all those tropes that I we engaged in was just sort of what we thought was true because that's what mm. we were told was true. I gotcha. Huh. Um, by by pop culture, by new news media, by you know the White House that drugs were substance abuse with this like moral failing yeah yeah and that's the lens th from which i viewed it the majority of my life yep. until much later when i when i kind of unlearned those things i see i see did you do but dare by then, by then it was by then of course it was too late yeah yeah, sure. oh, yeah we did dare yeah yeah okay you <laughs> yeah i remember that they don't do that anymore do they i i want to say they brought it back but i don't did remember. they really i something i read something about that oh, okay know. all right um do you, are, there, are there any um from like zero to 18 are there any particular um political or uh political or social events that like stick out on your head is just like like kind of uh, indelibly marked you do you think yeah i would say you know occupy wall street was formative for a lot of people my generation sure sure but you were that was you were in college by then right i was way past college yeah so i'm saying like zero to 18 like as an adolescent oh i thought you i didn't hear the zero to 18 no, no. i'm sorry no, no no but like before you left for school were there any were there any um you know in any events socially or politically that like indelibly marked you that I don't know that you had to wrestle with or you're trying to make sense of or changed what you previously I mean obviously 9-11 but I mean or the sort of response to 9-11 and that 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 was my senior year of high school ah. and that whole moment in time was very surreal for anyone who lived it yeah how did you make sense of it it didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to me <laughs> e even intuitively hmm. well you're attacked by you know 15 Saudi nationals couple Jordanians mm -hmm. of, of mysterious funding and then you're attacking a different country because there's some yeah. terrorist there who's supposedly this you know kind of Bond villain like figure mm -hmm. and then there's this other country we have to attack it that sort of I mean again I don't think it's very I don't think it's unique that most people's politics were radicalized by the dual events of the war in Iraq and Katrina there were very clear lies that were exposed fairly early mm -hmm. Because you know the problem with the Iraq invasion is they they made this uh, they made claims that could be disproven very quickly. Yeah, that's right. We're gonna make we're gonna make affirmative claims about what we're going to find. Yeah. Which is weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. That's just that's un, that's falsifiable. Yeah. As opposed to making like say vague claims about like they were which is what they kind of do now with like oh they're going to attack you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Iran was about to attack us. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I can't disprove that. So we can take out their number one military commander. Yeah. Just you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying you that's how you understood it at the time. You like you knew something. Something was up. seemed fishy. Yeah. Something seemed because it wasn't just conservative media. It was all media. It was yeah, liberal yeah, yeah. media. It was New York Times, Washington yeah, yeah. Post. But what were you? What were you reading, listening to, discussing with other people that kind of clued you in that something was fishy? Just I guess friends. This is before social media, really. Yeah, yeah. You this know? is when people it would hang out with you each other in person. And, yeah. You know, you'd start. You go to freshman year of college, and you're exposed to like democracy now, 
And you're like, whoa, there's like other things out there other than CNN and Fox News. Yeah. And again, this is before Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Zoomers don't know. Like <laughs> we lived in a whole other world. Wow. I don't know how old you are. I don't want to. I'm uh, a couple years younger than you. Um, but like there was no. That was it. That was yeah. your world in yeah. NPR. And yeah. NPR, of course, is very conservative in yeah, many, many right. key ways. That's right. And um, my my weaning off the conservative media was NPR and the New York Times. I read the New York Times every day. <laughs> my senior year of high school, freshman year of college. I thought I was so clever. <laughs> And informed. And well informed. informed. Yeah, and I read right. The Economist religiously. Yeah, that's right. And then I slowly started thinking, well, these are kind of bullshit too. No, but what, all these what, publications what were pro-Iraq war. But what, it was just the war propaganda that had you Well, thinking, I would say like, that's like your sort of shock moment because uh-huh. you had such faith in these institutions. Uh-huh. And again, it wasn't just like some of them. Like they all, except for, you know, maybe Paul Krugman at the New York Times. I mean, every single columnist, every single editorial. Was beating the war drum. Was beating the war drums. And it was all based on a, on on... Nothing. It was based on a total fabrication. Yeah. And again, they don't fabricate lies like that anymore. Now they now they make them unfalsifiable. But at the time it was. No. Yes, they, of course they do. Russiagate well, was so, like a complete fabrication. Well, I mean, Russiagate had some elements of truth to it, but it was mostly bullshit. Yeah. 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 Huh. OK. So when it was time for you to leave for school, did you have an idea of what you like when you looked at on life, like what you wanted for yourself and like what you wanted to do for a career? I wanted to be a filmmaker. I went to film school uh-huh. because you wanted to make what kind of films? You know, name it. Everybody wanted to be Martin Scorsese. Oh, not documentary film, but you wanted to make like feature films. Yeah, I was a writer. Oh, okay. I, mean, I was a play. I did playwriting and screenwriting. Why was that? Why was that a, an attractive proposition for you? Oh, I just love film. I still love film and television. Where did, where did you go uh, when you left for for film school? I went to New York. Okay, you went to NYU. No, I'm sorry. For film school, I went to UT Texas. But after film school, I went to New York. Sorry. Uh, for your master's? No, I just moved there to move there. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So you started at UT Austin. Yeah. I, and then you transferred to. No, I, I was, again, I was unclear because it's loud. I, 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 I finished school in Austin. You finished undergrad in Austin. Yeah. Got you. And then you went to New York to work. So, like, I, you know, I had dreams of doing screenwriting and then I just got caught up in the bartending scene and wasted five years of my life. What do you mean? Why do you say that? Well, I started waiting tables and bartending and fucking around and I sort of was fairly aimless. Is that, oh, okay. You weren't, so you weren't actively, like, you weren't actively writing or you were actually I tried writing, I just I wasn't I wasn't very disciplined and I you know got into like drinking and and bad things oh okay um booger sugar etc sure um sure. that was uh I sort of had kind of lost my way I was I was you know you you make a decent living doing it you know you make which you know fifty sixty thousand dollars a year which to you is a lot yeah, yeah as a young and then you're not guy. in any rush and writing projects never took off but then I sort of I had always done, always done political writing like on my own. Mm-hmm. So then I eventually did that, and I, I started writing when I was thirty-one. Okay, so you, so you, so you went to, you went to school in Austin. You didn't quite finish. That's what you said at the beginning. Yes. You, is it, if you feel comfortable? Why didn't you? Why didn't you finish? You said you were a couple credits shy. I had to learn third-level proficiency Spanish. Ah. And I'm very bad with languages. Sort of really? one of my, one of my great shames. Huh. And um, I did not finish. Because of the Spanish language requirement. Yeah, I wasn't going to sit around Austin for another year and a half finishing it. So I, I and what I wanted to do, I didn't really need a degree. I've never really needed my a degree. Mm, okay. So not that that I would say, you know, kids finish stay in school. <laughs> like, don't, that's right. That's not for everybody. Sure, sure, sure. So you so you picked up, went to New York because I'm going to work on writing here. But, you know, in order to pay the bills, I'm going I'm yeah, to bartend. I, got, I sort of lost that's my way a little bit. Yeah. A little bit sidetracked for five years. Yeah. But do you have do you have any fond memories of those times? Just your, your, you know, your salad days as a bartender? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was fun. We had, you know, friends and we did things and 
it was all very kind of low pressure, but you know, eventually you have to grow up. Sure, sure, sure. Did you, was your, was your, around this time was Occupy happening? And yeah, like, that was about the time. Okay. It was 2011. And did that, and was that, how did that shape or sharpen? I would say um, sharpened it a lot. In what ways? Tell me what you mean. Well, it was, again, I, I know looking back, maybe it's a little quaint 10 years later, but at the time it was, especially after the recession and, yeah. and all that stuff, it spoke to a certain, um, sense of class that had previously not been there mm-hmm. uh, from my perspective. Again, I, I know that there are tons of antecedent protest movements. Uh-huh. But what, what about it? It Was it the articulation of the politic of the 99% versus the 1%? Well, I, you know, these, a lot of the places I bartended and waited tables in were very, very wealthy places. Ah, very tawny. Okay. So, you know, I worked at a place called Charles, mm-hmm. which was on the West Village, and it was run by a bunch of degenerate cokeheads with family money. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I bartended at a private club called XVI, which is around for like 10 minutes and it was all it was celebrities. And like, you know, you sort of you're very much aware that that you're you, you're the help. Uh-huh. And now I know we're also like a, we were like a higher order of help because uh-huh. of the kind of racialized hierarchy of the restaurant industry. Sure. So we still had it relatively good. But still, you know, you're, you're very much aware of the kind of frivolity of the wealthy in New York. Can you give me an example of how of how you knew that you were, quote, the help? Like, is there any one instance? Well, you're sort of friendly with people, but you you never forget that you're there to like serve drinks and like. Is it that they never let you forget? Of yeah, your I mean, there's a very clear hierarchy. I know. Give me an example. Give Some of that a- hierarchy, you know, can become ambiguous. Like, there are ways in which people subvert that hierarchy. Like, people work their way up through like becoming celebrity chefs or whatever. Uh-huh. But for the most part, it's like the restaurant industry and nightclub industry in New York is run by the idle wealthy. Um, it's run by you know, kind of mediocre marketing majors from, <laughs> from, from, you know, BU. And Damn, it's, Adam, it's not like, well, it's, no, I mean, these, these, these are like the elites who are not like, you know, say what you will about certain elites, but like they can be somewhat sharp or they like, you know, learn Latin and, and they become somewhat, these people are just, you know, the kind of, uh, fail sons of wealthy <laughs> people yeah. who, who get caught up in their scene and they, you know, they, they, maybe they look they look good, or they bought the way to look. They bought themselves to look good, and they and they like the nightclub scene. I mean, it's a extremely um, sexist business. It's very it's extremely racist. Uh-huh. It's it's a it's a business where you literally just make summary judgments based on looks. Wow. Um, you know, um, don't want a place to become too quote unquote ghetto. So you have like actual racial quotas that are very wow, enforced for the staff. Both staff and, and who you let in. Wow, wow, wow. Which anyone who, again, anyone who's worked in that industry will tell you that. Yeah, like yeah, it's, sure. You know, you have, you have what's called merchandising where you put attractive people out on the porch and you put the ugly people in the back. Damn. So it's like a very crude business yeah. that when you're in the weeds of it, uh-huh. you, you know, there's some allure to it because you're like, you know, you're drinking and it seems ostensibly having fun, but you're always sort of working. Uh-huh. But you, you realize very quickly that there is a class of people who have a lot of money. Yeah. Who don't really appear to work. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, it's a bit of a generalization, but I think it's true in the New York nightclub scene. I would be more than happy to generalize that, that, and, and then while that's happening, unfolding in the context of Occupy, I think it makes it more stark that, I mean, you know, anyone who works 10 minutes in the, I was in the restaurant industry for 10 years yeah. and anyone who works 10 minutes in the restaurant industry, the, you know, notions of class and, and, and how they intersect with racism and sexism become fairly obvious very early. Did resentment start to increase or? Um, yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because and then in, I think in 2008, I, there was this German anarchist comic that I read, mm. which I've referenced on the We referenced on an episode of the podcast yeah. called um, 
the uh, called Abolish Restaurants, and it was an anarchist critique of the restaurants, mm -hmm. and it made a very clear like class criticism of restaurants. So they d divide you from front of the house, back of the house, white, Latino, yeah. um, reinforce racial hierarchies, reinforce sexist hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And I read it when I was like sort of just coming up and I was like, and I was like, that everything in this is 100% true. Mm. But I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. Even things like sections where they're like, oh, you're going to have, we're going to divide this arbitrarily into 10 sections. Mm -hmm. And you're going to like, if you're good at your job or if you're, if you're, you know, obsequious and, and, and compliant, we'll give you the good section. Mm -hmm. If you're um, defiant and ask about labor rights, you get the bad section. Ah, I see. Ha, ha, ha. And then, because logically you would think, well, why don't we just pool our resources? Yeah. Isn't that the most rational way of doing this? Yeah. No, no, no. Definitely don't want to do that. So you sort of see the way that they create this kind of bum fights um, system mm -hmm. where they pit workers against other workers. Yeah. Um, and I bought into that to some extent. I was like, so and so, so and so is a strong waiter. So and so is a weak waiter. It's uh. like they're all. It's all pretty much the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all miss. They tell you so. You'll you'll do the you'll you'll fight for the wrong bottom rung of the ladder. Ah. And this particular piece of anarchist propaganda like really opened my eyes to that. Yeah. Um. And again, it's it's a very sort of coddled middle class white guy thing to sort of take about seventeen years to become politically woke. No, but it took. It's, but, it's gonna take the time. But, uh, it took. Give no, I know. A break. But it was just that was just it's funny. Because um, my journey now has gone on like year eight. It's like a quest. Um, <laughs> Uh, the whole world must must spell it out for me in clear terms. <laughs> um, and then I'm like, oh, capitalism is bad. <laughs> um, yeah, and everyone else is like, welcome, yeah. Adam. <laughs> glad, glad you could show up. Yeah, um, that's right. nah, come and then on. assert yourself as a uh, as a as a as a as a Twitter pundit. Um, <laughs> that so, was my uh, that was when I started becoming more political. I guess around that time. cartoons as radicalizing agent? I did not see that coming. <laughs> but whatever it takes, I reckon. Tune in for part two, where he kind of tries his hand at being a capitalist for a brief moment before making a leftist turn in Spain. Oh, and what he would get into if money were not a constraint? Part two is up on the Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's left to do. If Patreon isn't your thing, we'd love to get your support to keep this thing going. <laughs> Head on over to whatsleftodo.com slash support and leave a little something in the tip jar. Okay, see you over on Patreon. Mm -hmm.